It is a wonderful evening for us to be together, and it's an exciting time in the life of this congregation as we are planning for the future, and as we had an exciting announcement this morning of new men who will be taking on the role of deacons and submitting those names to the congregation, thinking about all the new ways we can glorify God this year. We're so thankful for our ladies putting together a wonderful ladies' breakfast and If uh, you would like to be involved in that ministry, there are ways that you can be involved, and you'll definitely want to sign up for that. Also, if you are interested in being a part of one of our outreach teams, that reorganization is coming up very soon, and we're excited about all the ways that those outreach teams can really help us grow closer as a congregation and also uh, take care of the needs of our family members. As we think about this upcoming Missions Emphasis Day, I just, I just want to encourage all, all of you to get excited about Sunday because Sunday we are going to be hearing about some, some mission works that we have not uh, supported in the past that we are beginning to support. We'll be hearing exciting uh, reports from our own members that have gone on mission trips and you will not want to miss that. You will not want to miss our Bible class, our worship in the morning, or our evening service. And so please make your plans next week to be here with us. Reality has settled in. We have ended the holidays. We have officially begun uh, the second half of the school year. And you have probably, if you are either teaching school or currently in school, you've probably had to take some kind of a test, do some homework, and we're reminded of, of the feeling we have when we have to sit down and take a test. And even if it's something for work or something you've done for school, have you ever had that feeling when you sit down and you take a test and you realize you are not prepared for the test that you are taking. Have you ever had, I may be the only one in here that's had that feeling before, but you know that in the pit of your stomach when you just realize that there is no way this is going to turn out well, and you're just trying to get through that test as quickly as possible. I still have occasional nightmares about being stuck in a classroom, taking a test I'm not prepared for. That, that's something that none of us like to face. Uh, we don't really like tests very much, and so as we begin this evening, I, I thought it would be good as we're talking about tests, to go ahead and begin with a little test. So as we're thinking about uh, reading through the Bible in a year, I want us to be thinking about the major themes of each book that we're reading. As you know, we have a reading from uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and the Proverbs. And you'll remember these helpful pictures that will help us remember not only the name of the book, but also the theme. As we see these two palm trees, we think of the word palm, we remember the book Psalms. And we see that one of the palm trees is singing, one is praising, praying. And so we remember the theme of Psalms is prayer and praise. And so as we think of the book of Psalms, we're going to think of prayer and praise. Also, as we think of the book of Proverbs, you can see here a very intelligent-looking owl there with the, the glasses. And he looks like he's a graduate of a very distinguished university. And he's teaching a proverb, a fool and his money are... And we can probably fill in the rest, soon parted. And so as we think of the book of Proverbs, the theme of Proverbs is wisdom. And so when I think of this picture, I'm going to think of the book of Proverbs. Its theme is wisdom. There are wise principles uh, that, while not always true in every case, as general rules, if I apply them in my life, uh, they will be true. And then we also see in the book of Matthew, which is indicated here by a large mat with a U on it, uh, Matt, you, and just run that together, Matthew. Uh, Matthew's theme is the king of kings. And when Matthew talks about Jesus, Matthew is speaking of the king 
of kings. And it was very important for Matthew's audience that was primarily Jewish to see Jesus as the true Messiah, the true king that they had been waiting on. And then we come to the book of Genesis. And you can read this one pretty obviously, but remember this has the big N. And if you say big N very quickly, it reminds you of the word begin. And we think of beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings. We see the beginning of the world. We see the beginning of human beings. We see the beginning of sin. We see all sorts of beginnings bound up here in the book of Genesis. And again, that's where we're going to focus this evening as we think about some of the scriptures we've been reading. I want to begin as we think about tests, passing the test with a little riddle. And, and if you have already heard this before, it's been around for quite a while. If you've heard it before and you know the answer, uh, please don't say anything to the person next to you. So those of us who might not have heard it before can really think it through. But let's, let's think about this riddle together. What is greater than God... More evil than Satan, the poor have it, the rich don't, and if you eat it, you will die. Think about something that's greater than God, more evil than Satan, the poor have it, the rich don't, and if you eat it, you will die. Well, if you think about it long enough, the answer that comes up is nothing. There's nothing that's greater than God, and there's nothing that's more evil than Satan, and obviously, if you eat nothing, uh, you're not going to last very long. As we think about a riddle like this one, I want us to focus on this first statement. Do we really believe that there is nothing greater than God? Do we really believe that there is nothing worth giving up our relationship to God? Do we really have the understanding that I would lay down anything I had in exchange for knowing my relationship with God was secure? One of my most memorable moments going up to Michigan to visit my grandparents was coming in one evening as we had, we had driven all day and we were, we were hugging our grandparents and we were sitting down to talk and I noticed that over on the wall there was a nice new picture frame and it was one of those frames that had several spaces cut out for different pictures, different family photographs. I hadn't seen that before and so I went up to it to look at pictures of my family members and I started looking and I kept looking and I didn't recognize anybody. And I looked up the top row and the middle row and the bottom row and so finally, I turned to my grandpa, who was sitting over there watching me, and I said, Grandpa, I like this new picture frame, but who are these people? And he said, well, I got that a couple of weeks ago, and it came with some pictures of some pretty nice people. I thought they looked pretty good, so I just put it on the wall. <laughs> and he had, uh, he had apparently been waiting for one of us to notice that. You know, he was sitting there right by it, waiting for one of us to notice it, and uh, having some fun with it. But as I think about that, sometimes I'm convinced that's how we're tempted to look at characters in the Old Testament. You see, it's much more easy for us to identify with individuals in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, New Testament Christians. We're under that covenant as well. We have a lot in common with them, but sometimes when we read about characters in the Old Testament, it's almost like we're looking at a, a photo album of another family. And we look at that and we say, well, this is nice, but I'm not sure how that affects me. I don't know how that's going to change my life. And here's where the story of Abraham can be a wonderful inspiration and also instruction to us as we think about the way in which Abraham passed the test, the test of faith that God gave him. As we think about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, laying his son on the altar, it's a story that has been depicted in art. It's something that has, over the years, been discussed. It's, it's probably one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament and it's one of the first things that comes to our mind when we think about Abraham. Let's read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 22. 
because part of our Sunday nights are going to be focused on answering some questions that may have come up during our weekly readings. I want us to read the first three verses here of Genesis 22 and answer some of these questions. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now the first thing we need to understand as we read the first verse is that God tested Abraham. And some of the translations you may have might use the word tempt. I know the old King James used the word tempt. And so we're, we're forced to ask that question. Does God tempt us? Could I be tempted by God? Well, James helps us understand that a little bit better in the New Testament. When he writes in James 1 and 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So how does that make sense with what we read here, that God tempted or tested Abraham? Well, it's helpful for us to see the description for the Hebrew term that's used here. Uh, the, the best definition I've been able to find is to test, try, prove, tempt, a say, put to proof or test. A better understanding of this term would be to test or to, to prove, to give someone an opportunity to prove himself or herself. And this isn't the only time in the Old Testament we see God testing his people. In fact, we see that right after they crossed through the Red Sea, God tested the Israelites after he parted the Red Sea by giving them a commandment to follow. Not only that, but he tested the Israelites when he gives the law, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and there's all that thunder and lightning, and the people are afraid. Moses tells them that God is showing his presence in that way to test them and to make sure that they obey, that they're faithful to his commands. We also see the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites described as a test in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. And so we see this thread running through the Old Testament. It's important to realize that these tests that God gives us are always opportunities for his people to show their faith in him. When we think about the word test as the way it's used here, and then temptations that James is talking about, the way Satan attacks us with temptations, and the way James would say we are, are dragged away by our own lust into temptations, that is an entirely different matter than the tests that God gives us. Here's a helpful way for us to think about it. If you can imagine sitting in that classroom again, and preparing to take a test. Let's say that you receive your first test. And as you look through, you see that all of these questions on the test are things you've gone over in class, things you've been told to study. The teacher obviously wants to use this test as a chance for you to show your knowledge about the subject, to show your study and your preparation. When God tests us, he is offering us a chance to show our faith. Just like teachers have known for years... Tests are, are not designed to, to make students fail. You don't want to trick students. You want to show students and give them an opportunity to use the knowledge they've gained. Now let's say you get a second test. And this test is filled with nothing but trick questions. In fact, there are several lies that are sort of interwoven into this test. And the more you start taking this test, the more you realize there aren't any right answers. And even when you write down what you think is right, that's the wrong answer. That helps us understand Satan's temptations. You see... Satan's temptations never have our best interest at heart. His temptations are always designed to lead us along, to, to believe a lie, to believe something that's not true. And so that difference can help us understand God testing Abraham as opposed to when Satan will offer temptations toward us. 
God is giving Abraham here a chance to prove his faith. And so as we think about the way Abraham prepared for his test, the first three verses that we've read, let's look at verse 3 specifically. Because Abraham did some very specific things that will help us understand how we can prepare for the tests of faith that will come our way. And they will. Every single one of us will face tests in life. We see in verse 3 that after receiving this commandment, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Did you notice Abraham's immediate response here? God has given him what seems like an impossible command for a parent to understand, and yet Abraham took immediate action. And that's the first thing I need to understand. If I'm going to face a a test of faith, I need to be willing to take immediate action. When I receive instruction from God, I need to be willing to take immediate action. Abraham rising up early the next day, rather than putting it off, rather than thinking, well, I've got to... I've got to take some time to reflect on this and to really get used to what's going to be the result of this test and really think through how I want to do this. He immediately reacts in obedience to God. That's not our normal reaction to a difficult command, is it? It's not mine. If I have a difficult task ahead of me, my tendency is to put that off until I absolutely have to get it done. And try to set it to the side until right before the deadline, or right before something is due, or right before something needs to happen, and then I want to tackle that difficult project. I I would imagine I'm not the only one. I think we all struggle with that tendency. And yet Abraham, after receiving this impossible command, takes immediate action. You know, the Bible is filled with examples of people who either acted immediately in obedience, or who tried to put off that decision. I think about the Old Testament uh, individual Jonah, as Jonah is given a command, a challenging assignment to preach, the God, to preach uh, the, a message to a people he didn't want to preach to. And so he flees. He runs away. And we know what happens with the rest of that story. We know about being caught in the storm at sea, spending time in the belly of a great fish, and then ultimately doing what God had intended for him to do all along. But even at the end of Jonah's story, we see he resents that task. You see, Jonah didn't act immediately. As we think about the New Testament... I'm reminded of Acts 26 when we see Paul giving uh, his, his testimony about his life and his conversion experience and even sharing the, the message of the gospel with Agrippa. And there's a, a very interesting verse that is difficult to translate in which uh, Agrippa seems to say, uh, in a short time you will persuade me to be a Christian, or do you think that in a short time you will persuade me to be a Christian? It seems like he's taking what Paul is saying uh, seriously, that he's considering it, But then he refuses to act on it. He fails to act on whatever little thought was taking place as as he started to stop and maybe consider if what Paul was saying was true. But then he seems to dismiss that. And he failed to act. In contrast, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 9, which Ananias was given a very difficult assignment by the Lord. The Lord came to Ananias and said that he wanted him to go to Saul. Saul, who had been known for persecuting Christians... Ananias knows about his reputation. He's not thrilled about it. In fact, he responds to the Lord about the things he's heard about Saul. But God instructs him to go, and Ananias goes. And we know that as a result of that visit, that baptism, and then Saul, who would later become Paul, we see a wonderful ministry in the life of the man whom Ananias was sent to go and be with. He acted immediately. Even think about a chapter earlier in Acts chapter 8. 
an Ethiopian who was, who was studying Isaiah, and then Philip comes, preaches Jesus to him, and he immediately wanted to obey. When he saw water, he said, what is it that's keeping me from being baptized? You see, in the Bible, we have examples of those who acted immediately and those who didn't. Is there something that I've read in Scripture this week? Is there something that I've discussed with a friend this week that I need to react to? Is there a commandment that God has given that shows me I need to change my life, that I really need to respond to? It could be that that you've been to several worship services, that you've even studied with others about the gospel, and, and maybe it's time to react to that, to respond to that. It's important as we prepare for the tests of faith that we face to be able to respond with immediate action. And that's what Abraham did as he sets out on this journey. In verse 4, we read, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Not only did Abraham react with immediate obedience, but he also showed us that in order to pass our test of faith, we need to be able to learn from our past. And that's where it's helpful to think of this time in Abraham's life in the context of the history of his life. Just imagine what Abraham could have reflected on as he was walking with Isaac. He might have looked over at Isaac and thought back about the time that he went before the Lord and asked for Eleazar of Damascus, uh, one of his kinsmen, to be his heir since he was unable to have a child. The Lord promised him a son. He might have been thinking about the time that he and Sarah were so desperate in order for him to have an heir that Sarah even suggested he would go into uh, his servant Hagar and that that offspring could be his heir. And Hagar had a son, Ishmael. Can you imagine how, how desperate they would have been to, to consider, although that was a fairly common practice in that time, to consider doing that in order to solve this problem? God had promised them a son, and yet it seemed like their, their faith that God could almost reverse the, the physical nature of things that he could allow, too, to have a, a son that had been past those childbearing years. It, it seems like they just wanted to help God out. And, and maybe Eleazar of Damascus, or maybe Ishmael could live before you as an heir. And yet that wasn't God's plan. I wonder if Abraham thought of that as he walked with Isaac. I wonder if he thought about the past times that he had faltered a little bit, times that he had even lied trying to keep himself out of trouble, uh, saying that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife. A half-truth, but but a half-truth that was designed to keep the truth from being known and to keep his life in his own hands rather than being hurt by someone else. I wonder what all was going through his mind, and yet I'm reminded of the time in which three men came to visit him. They looked like three men. We find out that one of them was a manifestation of the Lord. The other two were angels. And we read about that taking place just a few chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, we find a statement here that although we don't know, I think this statement would have had to stick out in Abraham's mind for years to come. You see, he receives this message again. It's one they'd heard before. But he receives that beginning in verse 10, the 
men who, to whom he was speaking, a manifestation of the Lord, said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And look at this question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now earlier, when Abraham in in chapter 17, verse 17, had received that same promise from God, he laughed to himself as well. He wasn't sure that it could happen. He shared uh, Sarah's reluctance to believe they could have a son. And yet the response from God is, is anything impossible for the Lord? It's important for us to realize that we need to learn from our past. Abraham had tried to make Eleazar his male heir. God promised him a son. Abraham had a child with Hagar, Ishmael. God promised him a son. And God's response when they were reluctant to believe in his promise, is anything too difficult for the Lord? If you wonder how Abraham could have taken Isaac and been willing to sacrifice him, I think this question must have been going through his mind. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? He had seen the Lord do what seemed to be impossible. Isaac was living proof of that. It's interesting, too, the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 through 19, gives us a little bit of insight into what Abraham was thinking in verse 19. When he says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, it seems that Abraham was justifying to himself, saying, well, surely God can raise the dead. Now, this is before we see Jesus raise Lazarus. This is before the stone is rolled away, the tomb is found empty. And yet Abraham had faith that God could raise the dead. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? See, when we look back at our past, can't we all think of times in our past that we thought we were going through a struggle and it would just, it would never end? We thought that we were experiencing something that we would never see the end of. We thought that it would never go away. And yet we can see with the help of God working through our family around us, working through our Christian family, that we've been able to move through those times? Is there anything that's too difficult for the Lord? You may be here tonight and you may be struggling with something that no one else knows about. You may be the only person who knows what you face on a daily basis. It may be something that you struggle with constantly, something that's always in your mind, and you just feel like it'll never get any better. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? See, the wonderful thing about living the life of a Christian is we can bring those those difficulties, those challenges, we can bring them to the Lord in prayer. We can share them with our Christian family. And we might not see all the results we want to on this side of eternity, but we know that there's something waiting for us that we can't even imagine. You see, Abraham seemed to think in his mind, well, I know that the Lord told me I'm going to have a, a... a nation through this child, through my, my descendant. He promised him to me. Now he wants me to sacrifice him. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. God will take care of the rest. It's a beautiful picture of faith. So we see not only did Abraham learn from his past, but as we go through in verse 9, we see that he's willing to go through with this act that God had commanded. They came to a place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine the emotions as he was going through this action, binding up his son, Isaac, laying him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay 
his son. Now, before we read any further, we've read this story many times. We, we know what's coming next. But I want us just to stop and reflect on the faith, the amount of faith that this shows on Abraham's part. In fact, when the angel of the Lord uh, appears to Abraham and gives him a message, he says, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see, Abraham offered what mattered the most to him. He offered what mattered the most. One of the most poignant moments in this entire account is when Isaac speaks to Abraham in verse 7, and he says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac must have meant the world to Abraham. I firmly believe that. For, for Abraham and Sarah to have lived so long looking for a son, can you imagine hearing that message from your son, a son that you, you were there when he took his first steps, you were, you were there teaching him how to even to speak, you were the one who taught him about, about building altars and about glorifying God and offering things to God, and he's asking you that question. Abraham had lived his entire life following God faithfully. He had uprooted his family. He had left what he knew to follow God to a place where he did not know. And the promise God had given him was that he was going to have descendants through, through a son that he was going to have. He'd finally had the son. And now Isaac not only represented a son whom he'd waited so long for, but the realization of all of these promises God had given him. That his descendants would be as numerous as the stars or, or the dust of the earth. It must not have made sense. And yet Abraham was willing to offer what mattered the most. As we think about a, a poignant scene as he goes with Isaac up to this altar, as, as he gets ready to hold that knife, to come down with the death blow on his son, trusting in God, we see him interrupted by an angel of the Lord in verse 11 that calls to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham was told he would have a son, and it didn't make sense to him. So he suggested Eleazar. He was told he'd have a son again. It didn't make sense to him. He suggested Ishmael. But now he was given a command that didn't make sense to him, and he was willing to go through with it. You see, Abraham had been preparing for this test of faith his entire life. We see his faith in God's care and God's faithfulness to his promises developing over these chapters in Genesis. And now, as he's ready to come down with the knife in his hand, God interrupts him. And did you notice that it's not until Abraham is ready to fully sacrifice what matters most to him, he receives that message from God. This evening, I want to ask us, what matters the most to us? What is it in your life that matters the most? If you have a hard time answering that question, maybe think about what is mostly in your thoughts. What do you talk about mostly? What are you usually thinking about? What matters the most? And then I think we need to ask ourselves that question that Abraham faced. Are we willing to give up what matters the most to us on this earth? Do we really believe that nothing is greater than God? That nothing is more important than our relationship with God? It's usually not very fun to take tests. But you know what tests were the most enjoyable for me? There were the tests in which the teacher had prepared us for exactly what was going to be on the test. And you know that feeling when you get that handed out and you look at the questions and you realize that you're going to do well because you've prepared for it. The beautiful thing about the tests of faith that we'll face, uh, they'll be difficult, they'll be challenging, 
But thanks to biblical accounts of men like Abraham, we can be prepared for them. We can respond to God's commands immediately with, with immediate obedience. There may be a command this evening that you need to respond to immediately. Not only do we need to respond with that obedience, but we also need to be willing, even when it doesn't make sense to us, to learn from our past and to offer what matters the most. Beautiful aspect of this story is that we serve a God who did give what mattered uh, the most, who did give his only begotten son. He gave that sacrifice for us. And there was no one there to stop the hands that were going to crucify Christ. There was no one there to put an end to that death because that death was a part of the plan God had uh, to redeem his people. Those who would come to him, those who would decide to believe in him, uh, to repent of their past sins, to turn their lives around, to confess his name, and put him on in baptism. You see, God understands the kind of sacrifice Abraham was willing to make. He understands what it's like for us to sacrifice because he sent us his son, the ultimate sacrifice. And it's because of that that we can become Christians. It's because of that we can have faith in the same God who cared for Abraham and promised him that he would make a multitude of nations from his line and was true to that promise. That same God will be true to his promises for us. And if there's any way that you need to come forward and take advantage of those promises, please come as we stand and sing together.